I invite you and I draw your attention to the word of the Lord as we find it in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to be reading verses 11 through 16, but as we are prone to do as we walk through this book, we're just going to look at one verse this morning. We're going to look at verse 14, and I want to read verses 11 through 16 to give us a bit of context. So brothers and sisters, receive now the word of the Lord as we find it in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow or marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We humbly acknowledge together that your hands have made us and fashioned us. And so we pray that you would grant to us understanding that we may learn your commandments. That we would hope in your word so that those who fear you would see your work in us and rejoice. We know, Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted us. So let your steadfast love comfort us now, we pray, according to your promise to us as your servants. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, over the last two weeks, I've had the heartbreaking privilege, the sobering privilege of meeting with two seasoned brothers in the Lord who've walked with the Lord in covenant faithfulness over many many generations. And one of them at this point, they're essentially on their deathbed, says lost his power to communicate on a consistent basis. And one of them is not. The one who has lost those powers, you should have seen his eyes light up when I read to him Psalm 23. Nothing else really seemed to get through until I started reading scripture to him. Um, The other one does have his powers of communication. And as I was talking with him, he was telling me how disappointed he was that this ailment that has landed him in the hospital came upon him so suddenly that he wasn't able to grab his Bible before they rushed him to the hospital so that he had fallen behind in his daily Bible readings. And he didn't bring that up as if to say, I'm falling out of the Lord's good graces and I need his help so much right now so I need to jump through these hoops so that he's pleased with me. No, the point was, 
I miss that time of fellowship with my triune God as He communicates grace to me in and through the means of grace that He has provided. But it's such an encouragement. Again, it's, it's heartbreaking, but it's also a privilege and an encouragement to see these brothers who've walked with the Lord hold fast to their confession, even in the face of the last enemy. That's what Scripture calls death. To see them holding fast to Christ, even to the end. And know, one of them told me with absolute confidence, even if I'm not healed from this, and it's most assuredly he won't be healed from this, I will go to be with him. How can we face death? How can we live every day of our lives with that kind of assurance? Clinging that tightly to our Savior. Well, we know from the book of Hebrews that it's absolutely essential that we know who Jesus is in order to cling to Him. And His very person and His work, as it's revealed to us in the sacred text, is an encouragement for us to run to Him and hide in Him and find shelter in Him against the storms of this life, even death itself. And that's important for us because that's exactly what's happening to these Hebrew Christians that the author of the book of Hebrews, of this letter, this epistle, this exhortation, this sermon, that's their situation. They're those who have come out of Judaism. And when they heard the gospel, they turned away from the Mosaic law, seeing that it was fulfilled in Christ, and they were then baptized and became part of a local church and worshipped with that local church and participated in the sacraments or ordinances of that local church. And then they started to get persecuted, most likely from the Roman government, from the Jews that they, they left their company. They were probably taunting them. And they handled the persecution well at first. But as that persecution went on, some of them began to leave the church. Some of them began to abandon their profession of faith in Christ, thus proving that their faith was never really genuine to begin with. It was temporary faith. And they went back to Judaism. And what the author, the pastor of this letter knows is that those who are still in the church are tempted to do the exact same thing. And so what does he do? He parades before them the glories of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how He is greater than anything that has come before in the Old Covenant. He's greater than any prophet who the Lord spoke through because He is God's own Word. He's greater than any angel that the Lord mediated His Word through because He is God Himself. He's greater than Moses because Moses was a servant in God's house, but Jesus is the builder and the owner of the house. Jesus is the true Israel. He's greater than Israel. And on and on. He's showing them how glorious Jesus is. And what we're coming to now here in verse 14 of chapter 4 is a focus on the high priestly work of Christ. We've seen little hints of this already in Hebrews chapter 1 where it said that Jesus made propitiation for sins and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And in chapter 2, we see that he's a great high priest for us sharing in our very nature, becoming a man so that he might redeem us. But now the author is going to zero in on this. And from chapter 4, verse 14, all the way into chapter 10, his great focus is going to be on the Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest. He knows that this is a vital truth that they need to understand. 
And it's a vital truth that we need to understand as well. So as we begin looking at this, there's three truths that I want us to see from verse 14 this morning. From verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 4. First of all, I want us to see the necessity of our high priest. In other words, why is it that we even need a high priest? Why is that necessary? Second of all, I want us to look at the greatness of our high priest. What is it, in other words, that makes Jesus a unique or greater priest than has ever come before him? And thirdly, I want us to look at the command of our high priest. That is, what is demanded of us by the Lord Jesus Christ since he is our great high priest? And again, the reason that we're looking at this and the reason this should be an encouragement to us is because the author of the book of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit isn't just saying that he's your high priest, Hebrew Christians. But brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ is our great high priest as well. And so it's my great prayer that we will be encouraged by this this morning. So let's look first then at the necessity of our high priest. Look at verse 14 with me. Since then, we have a great high priest who is passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So the first thing, the question that's begged here is, okay, great, we're being reminded that we have a high priest, but if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, you may be asking, well, why is it that we even need a high priest? Why should I be excited about this reality or this truth? Well, think about it. Go all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. God is the only one who exists. No one and nothing else exists. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then God speaks everything into existence, doesn't He? And He makes everything good. And then the capstone, the climax of His creation is, and He takes deliberation before He creates man, He makes man in His image, male and female, He created them. And the incredible thing is that God's made man in His image so that He can have a relationship with God. So that he can have communion with God. So that he can walk with God and talk with God and know God. And God gave man the ability to be able to do that. And in order to walk in that fellowship into, on into eternity, God has said, I'm going to test you though. And if you pass this test, then your relationship with me will be secured forever. Well, you remember what the test is, right? We see this in... Genesis chapter 2, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do eat of that, then you will surely die. And yet what happens? They don't listen to God, thus securing that fellowship on into eternity. They fail the test, don't they? Rather than listening to God, rather than receiving his word as such, they instead listen to the serpent, that creature that they're supposed to exercise dominion over and rule over, they listen to this creature's counsel instead of the counsel of the one who is in authority over them, Almighty God Himself. And thus, what happens? Immediately, they realize, Genesis chapter 3, that they're guilty. And they try to cover their shame with fig leaves, try to cover their nakedness from one another and from God because they know this fellowship has now been broken. And so God calls down these curses upon them. On the male, on the female, on Adam, on Eve, on the serpent. So that now as we look at all creation, there's not a single joy that we get to 
enjoy, for lack of a better term, that also doesn't have some base note of sadness, doesn't it? Like you may be enjoying some time with your family, but eventually that time is going to end. And so everything is marred now by the fall and by sin. And so in light of that reality, probably the saddest part of all of Scripture happens at the very end of Genesis chapter 3. What happens? They're kicked out of the garden. They're meant to live in this place that God has specifically made for him under his rule and blessing. And yet because they disobeyed, because they sinned, and because God is holy, they're driven east of Eden, out of the garden, out of God's blessing and presence. And what's put there? An angel with a flaming sword so that they can't come back in and eat of the tree of life. And you see, from that point on, It was necessary now, in order for man to worship God, for there to be a third party. Because God is holy. And though He created us righteous and good and able to obey Him, we lost that ability in our sin and rebellion against God. And so now the only way that any one of Adam's offspring, which is all of us, can have anything to do with a holy God is if we have a mediator, an intercessor, a third party representing us before a holy and righteous God. And here's the incredible thing. Don't just want you to hear in all of this the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the just of God, but also the mercy and grace and love of God. Because what did God do, especially when we get to Exodus? He provided a priesthood, right? We've got Aaron as the first priest, and then his offspring will be priests after him through whom we are able to interact with God. That's what a priest does. His function, his office, is to represent a sinful people to a holy God. And we would have had no access unless God had graciously, lovingly provided a high priest and sacrifices for us to be able to do that. And here's the incredible reality that the author of the book of Hebrews is pointing out for us. Our great high priest now, is not like the Old Testament priests. He is Jesus himself. There are similarities, but there's vast differences. And so what we're to see in this is that we need a high priest because of our sin and because of God's holiness. And he's given us a high priest, not just in the Old Covenant, but now in the person and work of his son. Behold, brothers and sisters, the grace and mercy of our triune God to provide the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, to be our great high priest. So this is why we need a priest. We need a priest because we're sinful and because God is holy. And so God has provided this high priest. But then the second thing that the author of the book of Hebrews shows us here in verse 14 is the greatness of our high priest or the uniqueness of of our high priest. It's not just that he's any old high priest. He's a great high priest, which is necessarily redundant. John Owen, the English Puritan, points this out. It's like he's saying he's a great, great priest. It's superlative. So what is it that makes him so unique and so great, great, if you will? Well, the author points out two realities about the son. The first one having to do with his work, and the second one having to do with his person as our high priest. His work as our high priest is unique and great, and his person as our high priest is unique and great. So let's look first then at 
um, how his work is unique as our high priest. Look at verse 14 again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So the first thing that makes Jesus unique as our high priest is that he has passed through the heavens. Now you say, that doesn't mean anything to me. What, 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 what are you, what, why is that unique? Why is that special? Well, what's it talking about here? The author is talking about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you recall the Son of God becomes a man, takes flesh upon himself, John chapter 1, and he lives the perfect life in obedience to God's law that we had all failed to live, that his righteousness might be counted as ours. And then he goes to the cross, our sins are imputed to him, and he pays that penalty in full on the cross. Then he's buried, he raises from the dead, he appears to his disciples, he instructs them how all the scriptures point them to him, and then what happens? Does he stay with them after those 40 days? No. Go back to Acts chapter 1. Turn to Acts 1 with me. You're very familiar with this book if you went through it with us over several years. But just to remind you, look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 9. Jesus has just told his disciples, the Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. But before that happens, he's got to go somewhere. So look at Acts chapter 1 verse 9. And when he, that is Jesus, said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Think about the scene here. They're sitting there, listening, receiving these words from Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts to elevate off of the ground. Jesus is essentially flying here. You know, not like really fast, but slowly he's ascending up into the heavens. And you can imagine the the disciples probably, their jaws are hitting the floor, right? Jesus in his body is starting to ascend up. He's being lifted up. And as they're watching... Watching him, who knows how high he goes, that would be mere speculation to guess. But then all of a sudden as they're watching, awestruck, this cloud comes into view and blocks their vision of the Lord Jesus Christ so that they can't see him anymore. Some of you guys are actually looking up at the ceiling. There's nothing up there. I'm just just doing that for my own benefit. But they lose sight of Jesus because this cloud covers him. And, And then what happens? Look at verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven... No doubt, just absolutely amazed, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Verse 11, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven, into the skies? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is going to come back again through the sky, through the clouds, a second time to judge the world, the living and the dead, Um, and we cannot wait for that day to come. But... This is the point. Jesus has ascended. He's gone through the heavens up to where the Father is, returning to the glory that he left. And it has to be a physical place, right? Because Jesus has a physical body. Now, no doubt it's a glorified body, but his body has to go somewhere. And so where is it going? Well, that's the whole point. The whole point is he's going to the very presence of God himself, to the heavenly tabernacle. Now, to get a sense of this, I think it's helpful to remember the structure of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple and the role and function of the priest in that. 
You recall that when the Lord gave the people the tabernacle and the temple, that they might fellowship and worship him, um, the layout was such that there were these courts where the sacrifices would be made. That's the first section of the tabernacle or the temple. There'd be a wall around it, and there would be the altar where they'd offer sacrifices. There'd be washing, uh, washing basins where they could ritually purify themselves. And, and then that was one area, and then there was a curtain or a veil. And that led into the next section of the tabernacle, the actual building. And that was what they called the holy place. That's where the showbread was, the lampstand was. The high priests went in there regularly to worship God, to pray for the people, to represent the, uh, the people to God. And then in the next area, there was again a division of a curtain or a veil. And then what was in there? That was what they called the most holy place or the holy of holies where God's presence would meet with the people and the high priest could only go once a year on the day of atonement to sprinkle blood for the sins of the people, thus sowing the justice and holiness of God, but also the grace and love of God and that he provided a way for them to relate with him. And so the priest, as he would go into the temple or tabernacle, would disappear from the sight of the people. The common people couldn't go through the first or the second veil. They were out in the courts and they were being represented by the priest. Well, think about what's being said here about Jesus. What's being said here is Jesus has left the courts of this world, of the earth. And as he ascended, he went past that first veil, that cloud, the skies, that has blocked our vision of him, our seeing him. But he hasn't just gone through the first veil, through the heavens. He's gone up to where the Father is through that second veil to the holy of holies, representing us before God himself. Think of how incredible this is. How amazing this is. Now, one of the the challenges that these Hebrew Christians probably received from the Jews that they left was, we have a high priest and you don't. We have someone representing us to God Almighty and you don't. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to say here is, oh no, yes, you do. And he's not interceding for you just in the earthly temple. Hebrews chapter 9, he's interceding for you in the heavenly temple. These are just types and shadows. The sacrifices, the priests, the veils, right? Because what happens when Jesus dies in Matthew's gospel? The veil of the Holy of Holies is rent in two. Because we are now taken into the Holy of Holies with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is the work that he's done. Offering himself as a sacrifice on the cross, right? Behold, John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus doesn't offer an animal as a sacrifice like the Old Testament priest would have. No, he offers himself. And he's spotless, he's perfect, he's a worthy sacrifice. And there he is, left this world, left the courts through the first veil into the second veil, the holies of holies, where he represents us before God Almighty. That's the kind of access that we have. And we can only have that kind of access because Jesus is a great, great priest. He's a unique high priest and that he hasn't served in the heavenly, or I'm sorry, the earthly temple, but the heavenly temple itself. And so though we cannot see him doing that work, we love him, don't we? doing it for us. So the first thing that's unique about Jesus 
is his work. This work that he's accomplished. He doesn't keep doing it. It's, it's an accomplished work, right? He doesn't have to offer sacrifices again and again like the Old Testament priest did. He did it once, and now that's why Hebrews 1 says he sat down. He's still interceding for us. But a priest would never sit down because his work was never done. But Jesus' work is done as our high priest because he's the perfect sacrifice that all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. So he's unique, first of all, in his work. But then second of all, he's unique as our high priest as to his person. Again, look at verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 4. It's kind of fun. Since I'm only preaching on one verse, I've got it memorized at this point. So that's fun. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So what we're being told here is that Jesus is unique in his person as our high priest because he's truly God and he's truly man. The man part comes first. What do, he's described as Jesus. And what is the author tipping us off to? The fact that Jesus uh, conta- has everything essential to human nature. He has a fully human nature. And he had to have a fully human nature, though that's not unique from the Old Testament priests, is it? They were fully human. Jesus is fully human, though. He had to be. Why? To represent us. Who's who's the one that ate the fruit in the garden? It's a man. It's a human being. And so we deserve this punishment. And it has to, in order for it to be just, it has to be met out on a human being. And so Jesus takes on a human nature so that he can bear that penalty and that punishment for us. And he also has to be human. Why? So that he can obey the law perfectly in our place. Fulfilling all righteousness for us so that can be counted as our own. And so what we're being told here is about Jesus' given birth name. Go back to Matthew, not right now, but you can later think about Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. When the angel comes to Mary, having been sent from the Lord, and says, Mary, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. Talk about flabbergasting news. What? I'm not even married yet. How am I going to do this? And yet what's even more amazing is the name that the angel says she is to call her son. What does the angel say? You are to call him Yeshua, Jesus. Yahweh saves. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. He can only do that, brothers and sisters, if he is truly man, the Son of God, taking on a human nature for us and our salvation. So he's not, but he's not just truly man, he's also truly God. And we see that there in the title, the Son of God. Now this is where he is unique from an Old Testament prophet, right? The Old Testament prophets, um, priests, excuse me, were truly human, but that's why we need a prophet, a priest who is also truly God, because the Old Testament priest would die, and then you'd have to have a new one, and another one, and another one. Jesus is eternally our high priest, because he is the Son of God. And why does he have to be truly God in order to save us? Because we owe an infinite debt. The debt is calculated based on the value, the worth, the glory of the one who is offended. And the one who is offended is Almighty God Himself, who is eternal and infinite. And so we owe Him an infinite debt that we could never pay. But Jesus, the God-man, truly God and truly man, can pay that. Because He is God Himself. Only God could pay God back this infinite debt. And Jesus is uniquely fit to do that. And that's what He's done with His atoning death 
with His perfect life, the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten of the Father, unites Himself to a human nature so that we have two distinct natures in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our high priest and has done everything necessary for us to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. So again, think of the retort that the Jews would say, you don't have a high priest. Oh, yes, you do, says the author of the book of Hebrews. Hebrew Christians, you have the superlative, the priest of priests, the great, great priest. I don't even have language, the author of the book of Hebrews is saying, to tell you how wonderful he is. And there he is at the right hand of the Father, seated, because everything necessary for your salvation is done. And there he is interceding, pleading for you. So how could you possibly think about turning away from him? There's refuge and, and, and no one else but him. He alone is the rock in whom you can hide. And so why would you turn anywhere else? This is meant to be a great encouragement and comfort for them to persevere in the faith. If verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 4 was meant to warn them and scare them, instill a godly fear, threaten them so that they would continue, this is meant to be gospel balm to their souls. That we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. So if this is true, then how are we to respond? What what is the command that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us thirdly? The third point, what's the command of our great high priest that he gives us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as this letter is penned and preserved and now given to us and preached to us this morning? Well, quite simply, it's at the very end of verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. This is what we've been told again and again thus far in the book, isn't it? Don't let slip what you've been given, your confession. Hold fast to it. And here we're being told again, hold fast to it. And John Owen, uh, the English Puritan, said that the Greek word here is, is like you're tenaciously holding on to something that someone is trying to take away from you. He uses the example of a crown that's trying to be ripped out of your hands and you're holding on to it for dear life. I found the metaphor a little bit more helpful of me trying to hold on to my son and someone's trying to take him away from me. You better believe that with my dying breath, I'm going to cling to him. It's the same word John Owen says, actually, that Mark uses in his gospel to proclaim how, to explain how the, the Pharisees hold to the traditions of man, Right? Some of the reason why they want to kill Jesus is because they hold so tightly to their traditions. And what the author is saying here, remember how the Pharisees held to their traditions that tightly? You need to hold to Jesus that tightly. Your high priest who's passed through the heavens because where else can you run to for salvation and reconciliation with God? Now, here's the thing. What What does that look like? What does it look like for us to Hold fast to our confession. Well, John Owen, by the way, if there's anything helpful in this sermon, here's what I want you to assume, that I stole it from John Owen. Okay? So, and that, I commend his seven-volume commentary set on the book of Hebrews. It is glorious. Uh, We're working through it together as a pastoral staff. And I tell you what, we literally keep coming back to it going, I'm not going to read anything else 
Like, what's the point? But here's what he says about, what does it look like for us to hold fast our confession? He breaks it up into two parts. He says, first of all, there's the faith, and that's, that's internal. It issues forth from our hearts. And then externally, there's obedience. And he flat out says, this is a direct quote from his commentary. He says, faith is the root. That's why it's internal, right? You can't necessarily see it. If you're seeing the roots of a plant, that's not necessarily a good thing. And the fruit is obedience. It issues forth from that faith. Faith is the root, obedience the fruit of our profession. And so first I want to look at the faith very briefly. The faith is that internal, our hearts believing all that God has said about His Son in His Word. We believe it. We intellectually agree that what God's Word says about Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit and about salvation, everything is true. But it's more than just that. Satan himself knows that Scripture is true. He knows that the Gospel is true, but he doesn't trust it. He doesn't walk in accord with it. And so the second part is that we lean into these truths. They, we lean into God in these truths to bear the weight of our souls. And so it's not just a mere intellectual exercise or, or intellectual assent. We lean into the Lord Jesus Christ as our confession. That's what it means to have true saving faith. Many of these who turned away and went back to Judaism may have temporarily professed faith, but that was false faith. That was temporary faith, and it didn't last until the end. But our faith is a faith that is not just external, but internal. But it does issue forth, secondly, in obedience. That faith issues forth in obedience. It's the fruit of that faith. So what does that look like? It looks like works, and it looks like words. First of all, works. What do we mean by that? We mean that it looks like moral conformity to the law of God. That's what we were created for, folks. Psalm chapter 1, blessed is the man who doesn't sin, who doesn't do all these things, but instead he delights in the law of God and he meditates on it day and night and he walks in accord with it. And if we have true saving faith in the spirit dwelling within us, that will issue forth in moral conformity to the will of God. And so our character will reflect more and more the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll look like moral conformity. But it'll also look um, like, uh, like it'll show up in our words. What do we mean by that? It'll show up, first of all, in our corporate worship. It'll show up in how, what we sing, and in what we pray, and in what is preached, and in what we read. I, I don't know if you've been to a Presbyterian or Reformed church, but oftentimes, before, uh, the, well, as the service is starting, they will together, as a congregation, as clunky as that may be, they recite together an ancient creed. As if to say, this, not as if, this is what we believe in agreement with those who have come before us. And so that's what we're to be doing. We're to be holding fast to the faith in our worship as we confess truths about God, as we pray, as we sing, as we hear Scripture read, and so on and so forth. I don't know if you think about it that way, but by you being here this morning and worship God, you're holding fast to your confession. But we don't just do that here, do we? We also do that in the world, don't we? Amongst our unbelieving family members, friends, co-workers, etc., etc., when they come up to us, as Peter says they will, and they say, what's the hope that you have? We are unashamed to tell them, my great hope is in Jesus, my great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
We're not ashamed to do that. And that's what it means to hold fast to to our confession with our words. Not just corporately here, but we then carry that out into the world, to the ends of the earth, brothers and sisters. Maybe we don't physically go ourselves, but we're sending others to go. And we should be willing to go ourselves. Right? Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is what it looks like to confess, hold fast our confession. And brothers and sisters, we need this exhortation. Do you want to know why? Because we have an enemy, the flesh, the world, and the devil that wants nothing more than for us to make shipwreck of faith. You remember Jesus' words to Peter. Peter, Peter, he's saying, I'm going to, though everybody falls away, I'm going to stay true, Lord. Jesus looks at him, I'm sure, with a lot of compassion and says, Peter, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. And Peter does falter, doesn't he? Denies the Lord three times, but the Lord restores him to himself. He doesn't stay in that declining state. He is restored to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you think that was just for Peter, brothers and sisters, Satan and his demons want nothing more than for each one of us to be sifted like wheat. And yet our high priest is praying for us, isn't he? And so we need to know that and rejoice in that. Because what's going to happen? Jesus said this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Mark chapter 7. Storms are going to come and beat upon the house of your life. And as those storms rage, if your house stands in the midst of them, it'll only be because you're built on the solid rock of Jesus' words, of God's words, of holding fast to Him as His Spirit graciously is at work in you. But if you don't, that house will fall, and oh, how great that fall will be. Our enemies of the flesh, the world, and the devil want nothing more than that for us. So don't think that that opposition will end until we either close our eyes in death or open them again. Or, or anew when Jesus comes back again. The opposition will continue. And so we need to, to cling fast to Christ, hold fast to Him as our confession. And if you're anything like me, I know what you're thinking. Man, all this opposition. And then you know, Jason, when I look at my confession, when I look at my corporate worship, when I look at my witness to unbelievers, when I look at my own heart, When I look at my moral conformity, I come up short. I know you said God is holy and righteous and perfect. I'm not. I sin daily. All of those things that you talked about that our confession looks like, I've sinned in those ways already this morning. But you see, brothers and sisters, that's not reason to keep you away from God. That's the reason for you to look to Jesus as your high priest. That's the whole point that he's there at the right hand of the Father. If you don't believe me, turn very briefly to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's just the two books forward in your Bible. Go past James, 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to Him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. There was a temple in the Old Covenant. 
Jesus has now come and ushered in the new covenant and said, I'm the temple, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And now that we're in him, brothers and sisters, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Goes on to say, to be a holy priesthood. There were priests in the old covenant. Jesus is the great priest in the new covenant, and in him we now are priests. What does he mean by that? To offer, look at the very end of verse 5, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, our person and our work as fallible, as sinful as they are, no doubt good works are issuing issuing forth because the Holy Spirit's at work, but we see how tarnished they are by the flesh. Our great hope is that Jesus, as it were, not as it were, is standing between us and Almighty God and He's taking us and He's taking those works and He's perfecting them by His work and presenting them to the Father so that the Father is actually pleased with our feeble attempts. What greater motive is there than that to continue to hold fast to our confession, knowing that we can please our triune God who so graciously saved us. I want to please Him. (laughs) I love Him. And I know my weakness, and I know you know your weakness. So stop looking at yourself. Don't stay looking at yourself. Look at Him. One look at yourself, ten looks at Him. And know and be encouraged by the words of your great high priest that all the days of your life, and even up to the point of your death, He tells you what? John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Don't turn there, but I'll read it to you. These are the words of your great high priest to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? God can't lie. Jesus is God, so he's not lying here. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Just as he left, he will come back again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus is the way, and Jesus is the destination. He laid down his life for us. He presented himself as a sacrifice before the Father. The Father is pleased, and he will not lose one of his sheep. Brothers and sisters, he's held fast to us, so let us hold fast to him. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for these astounding truths that in spite of our sin and in light of your holiness and justice, you have redeemed us by sending your Son to be our great high priest. Thankful that he intercedes for us even now. He is presiding over this worship service, as frail and sinful as we are, and he's taking it and, and making it a pleasing sacrifice to you. And we acknowledge, Jesus, that by your Spirit, you're the one who's empowering us to do even that. And so we pray that as we see our feebleness, as we see the necessity of our great high priest, that we would see, Jesus, just how great you are. You are sufficient for all of our needs. And so we pray we would respond in light of these realities with faithfulness.
to you even as you have been faithful to us. Understanding that you will hold us to the end and you will bring us home to yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May your people be edified by these truths that we might be further conformed to your image and make your gospel known to those around us. We ask this in the name of our great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and for his sake, amen.